1: From Vermont Public Radio, this is Brave Little State. Filling in this month for Angela Evansy, I'm Mitch And
2: When you think of snow, you think of um quiet and you think of isolation and being cerebral. And, you know, writing is a pretty solitary
1: craft. And this is George Ann Fowler, a woman with a passion for reading and writing. She went to Goddard College and studied education. She took writing courses as well, and she still dabbles in writing poetry from her home in Thetford, Vermont.
2: Yeah, I live in a a broken-down hippie uh, cabin. I'm renting this little place, and nothing is level. Everything rolls towards you if you're trying to cut on a cutting board. It's just ridiculous. But it's great. I mean, it's isolated back road, and um, yeah, and that's what got me thinking.
1: Here at Brave Little State, we take on a question that you have about Vermont, our region, or its people. Georgianne Fowler got to thinking, and she submitted this winning question.
2: What draws so many writers and poets to Vermont? Who are some well-known writers and poets, both past and present?
1: This month on the podcast, the literary luminaries of Vermont, and why so many writers seem to thrive in the Green Mountain State. We have support from the VPR Innovation Fund. Welcome.
2: And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, VEDA has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today.
1: And full disclosure before we dive in, when we first spoke to George Ann Fowler, she was battling a nasty cold.
2: Well, I started a new job last week, and of course, I'm working in early childhood ed, and everybody has green snot spackled all over their little faces.
1: (laughs) So we're going to do our level best to answer Ann's question, and we're going to have a lot of fun doing it. But before we can explore why Vermont seems to be such an alluring place for writers, we need to establish if it really is So I called up this guy. I'm Timothy Considine. I'm the regional economist for the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, New England Information Office. Considine walked me through the Bureau's website to find data on particular jobs within a region. And as it turns out, There's actually a a large concentration of of writers and, and authors in the state relative to other states in the country and across all the states in the District of Columbia. Vermont is within the top five for in terms of concentration of jobs within this uh, category. So, small state, lots of writers. And now we're going to meet some of them. The first is a personal favorite of our question asker, George Ann.
2: I would choose Katherine Davis because she's such an unusual writer and um, such a accessible and interesting uh, person.
1: A little backstory here. Catherine Davis was Fowler's writing instructor at Goddard College in Plainfield and is currently the senior fiction writer on the faculty at Washington University in St. Louis. That's where the teaching gig is, but Davis chooses to live most of the year in Montpelier.
3: I have absolutely no wish to leave this place. I like the winter. I think it's pretty wonderful.
1: Davis has written eight novels. Her newest, published this year, is called The Silk Road. Fans of her work in these parts like to point out her novel, The Thin Place from 2006, which puts the reader in a couple of Vermont cities and towns with some literary sleight of hand.
3: The Thin Place is set in Montpelier and Callis, although they're not named. I wrote that during this brief period when we were in exile in New York State, so I could see here better from there what it was like here and i think i've always sort of done that it's as if this place where i live is the very quiet empty place where my spirit gets to expand to its fullest and will invite in all sorts of other things
1: so love of winter, spiritual fulfillments, I kind of expected Vermont's natural beauty to be Davis's answer to the question of why Vermont is such a draw for writers.
3: Then there are other places in the world um, that possess great natural beauty. So for my own part, and of course I can only really answer for myself, I think what is most attractive to me about living in Vermont as a writer, is something that characterizes Vermont and the people of Vermont. And it's that sense here, very strong sense here, that nobody's going to tell you what to do, which, of course, operates in the state in good ways and bad ways. You know, school boards Contend with the nobody's going to tell you what to do, and have a lot of trouble with that. Often, everybody wants to um, stick to their very own guns, but the feeling in the place, ever since I first moved here, which was back in nineteen sixty nine, was freedom—perfect f- freedom—to do what you want to do, and and I. I, I feel like the air is full of that here and continues to be that way.
1: Hi, Jeffrey. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Great to see you. The next author I visited is well acquainted with that spirit of independence.
4: I'm Jeffrey Lent, and I'm from Vermont, and I write
1: fiction, I write novels. Jeffrey Lent lives in Randolph after many years making his home in Tunbridge. He and his wife, Marion, and two energetic English setter dogs all share space in an early 20th century Victorian home that once housed a local medical practice. Lent is the author of the 2001 New York Times bestseller, In the Fall, the first of five novels that would follow. And books were always a part of his life growing up. Lent describes his parents as early hippies who predated the -the back-to-the-land wave of the early 1970s by about 30 years. They went to Dartmouth to hear Robert Frost recite poetry and kept books all over the house. But Lent was still expected to work on the farm in North Pomfret, where he grew up.
4: One of the things that really prepared me well for the life of a writer was growing up on a dairy farm because... It doesn't matter if it's Christmas or the 4th of July or whatever, the cows still have to be milked, right? I mean, it's just, it's the way, it's the work has to be done.
1: You're not going to a job. You don't have a day off. Our question asker, she wanted to know what makes Vermont uh, such an alluring place for writers and poets. Assuming that you think it is, and I'm not necessarily assuming that you do, what would you say the answer to that question is? You know,
4: I think a couple of different things. Um, Literally the geographical location, being as close to New York and Boston as it is, and yet being a pastoral, lovely place. Um, So I think there's that part of it. I think the strong-knit community is also really important. And I, I trace a lot of it to the town meeting, but the fact that we all know each other, and even though we may not really know, like, the politics of somebody, we can usually kind of guess. But there's something that transcends that, that keeps us in a larger community sense. You know, the volunteer fire departments, the first responders, they're our neighbors. We know who they are. When they when we need them and they show up, we know at least half of them, if not more. and. I think that's an important aspect of it, too, this community. And the respect of privacy. The two they kind of go hand in hand, which is, you, you know, you live and let live. You have that attitude about your neighbors and yourself, and you expect it. Um, and privacy is pretty important for a writer, you know. So all of that, all of
1: that, I think, kind of combines. Jeffrey Lent writes rich, dense prose packed with detail kind of writing that can make a reader feel immersed in the sights, sounds, smells of a given scene. His novel, A Slant of Light, contains a passage about eating a fresh-picked peach that will make you feel like the juice is dripping down your chin. He's also a voracious reader. His writing study is lined with books of poetry, fiction, and nonfiction from writers past and present. But Jeffrey Lent defers when asked to talk about some contemporary Vermont writers that he loves to read
4: naming contemporaries is not really comfortable because then you, you, there's always somebody you forget. And then, you know, it's like they hear the omission. <laughs> Nobody hears the omission more than the writer who feels like they should be included,
1: right? We, too, are concerned about leaving out writers. But we also want to do our due diligence to answer Part 2 of Georgia Ann Fowler's question about some of Vermont's best-known writers, past and present. So we've got a more comprehensive list of many authors than the ones we're going to mention right now, which you can find on the web version of this episode. It will also have some recommendations of books to read by those authors, and the list can be found at bravelittlestate.org. But right now, because even this admittedly abbreviated list is too long to tackle by myself, I'm enlisting the help of our assistant news director, Mark Davis, who is also editing this month's episode. So Mark, let's talk writers and we'll start with some of the more notable authors from years gone by in Vermont. Who do we start with, as if I didn't know?
0: Well, we've got to start with Robert Frost. Uh, He lived and worked in Ripton for much of his life. Uh, His old place is now a National Historic Landmark.
1: Yep, and Nobel Prize-winning author Sinclair Lewis. He lived in Barnard. He and his wife owned Twin Farms, and that's now a luxury resort.
0: Roger Kipling spent four years in Dummerston. That's where he wrote The Jungle Book and other things.
1: Wallace Stegner, he's probably best known as a Western writer, but he spent most of his summers in the Northeast Kingdom, and he considered Greensboro his Second home.
0: Shirley Jackson published The Haunting of Hill House, and We Have Always Lived in the Castle in North Bennington.
1: We Have Always Lived in the Castle, by the way, is going to be a new Hollywood film coming out soon. Dorothy Parker, along with artists from the famed Algonquin Roundtable, spent time on Neshebe Island in Castleton's Lake Bombazine.
0: Galway Canal, winner of both the National Book Award and the Pulitzer for Poetry, lived in Sheffield in the Northeast Kingdom.
1: Yeah, and sadly, the list of famous names of the past has increased dramatically in recent years, Mark. A few years back, three literary giants all passed away within a few months of each other.
0: Yeah, one of those was David Budbill. His poetry, especially his famed Judah was inspired by a small-town life in Walcott. He died in September 2016.
1: Yeah, and he died just days after the passing of Barton poet Leland Kinsey. And just four months later, Mark Kinsey's fishing buddy, Howard Frank Mosier, perhaps Vermont's most famous novelist in recent times, he died at his home in Irisburg. Now, fortunately, there are many prominent Vermont writers who are still with us. And again, this is an incomplete rundown with many more contemporary authors listed at BraveLittleState.org. But we have to start with Chris Biljalian, who seems to have a permanent place on the New York Times bestseller list. His latest is called The Flight Attendant. He lives in Lincoln.
0: Archer Mayer has written his Joe Gunther detective series from his home in Newfane.
1: Weybridge author Julia Alvarez got a National Medal of the Arts from Barack Obama in 2013.
0: The state is also home to several children's and young adult authors. East Cowes resident M.T. Anderson won a National Book Award, as did Will Alexander, who teaches at the Vermont College of Fine Arts. And Katherine Patterson, author of Bridge to Terabithia, lives in Montpelier.
1: And Mark, two literary giants we haven't even mentioned yet with Vermont ties include John Irving. He wrote a number of books so popular they were turned into big Hollywood films, The World According to Garp, Hotel New Hampshire... And the Cider House rules among them. Irving lived at a home in Dorset for more than 20 years. He now makes his home in Toronto. And we did reach out for him to appear in this episode, but he politely declined. In a phone conversation that I had with him, he told me that he doesn't really talk about books in between publishing. But he did mention to me that he's working on a new novel right now that will likely come out in 2020. Another author who declined our invitation to appear in this episode is Annie Prue, a University of Vermont graduate who lived in a number of places in Vermont, including Versher, for three decades. She moved to Wyoming shortly after publishing her Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Shipping News. I did speak about Annie Prue with Micaiah Galt. She's publishing her debut novel, Goodnight Stranger, later this summer. And she's an instructor in the Writing and Publishing MFA program at Vermont College of Fine Arts in Montpelier.
5: Here's the thing I know about Annie Prue is that she, in interviews, praises this idea of voluntary solitude, the luxury of living alone and being a master of one one's own time. And I, I think, you know, that she, she, I think, was talking about sort of a time after her children were grown and gone and, you know, the sort of beauty of living alone. But I thought about that a lot thinking about Vermont and the solitude
1: of Vermont. That solitude, and yes, the natural beauty of Vermont, has inspired a lot of the poetry written by Major Jackson. Oh, this is your study, huh? Yeah, yeah, this is where the magic happens, I guess. Beautiful. I meet with Major Jackson at his home in South Burlington.
6: This is my guilty pleasure. I, I buy rare... Rare books, and I also sometimes in
1: his writing study. He shows me some of his most valued books, including a first edition volume of poetry by Gwendolyn Brooks, the first African American woman to win a Pulitzer Prize for poetry. About the author, Jackson is a professor of English at the University of Vermont, who's published four volumes of poetry, including Rolled Deep, which won the 2016 Vermont Book Award. Here he is now reading an excerpt from his poem, Enchanters of Addison County.
6: Romanticism has its detractors, which is why we lined the road with tea-lit luminaries and fresh-cut lemons. We called it making magic, then stormed the corners and porches of general stores, kissing whenever cars idled at four-way stop signs or sought grade A maple syrup in 10 containers.
1: Jackson's dream of coming to Vermont began when he attended the Bread Loaf Writers' Conference in Middlebury in 1996, a place a world away from the city of Philadelphia where he grew up. Jackson worked at Bread Loaf that summer as a waiter. We
6: did a lot of hiking that summer when we weren't waiting tables and in classrooms or in the little theater listening to readings or lectures. One of those evenings after all the, the, the long day of poetry readings, we went skinny tipping in uh, Lake Pleiades, and the stars were out, and I remember thinking, someday I'm going to live here. And six years later, 2002, I moved here as a result of a position opening up in the English department. I was determined to get that job. Because <laughs> I... I had had not in the six years returned to Vermont, but the memory of it stayed with me.
1: Did you have any concerns about coming to, frankly, one of the whitest states in the country as an African American? Not an issue. Not an issue for me.
6: I do not want to diminish the importance of race, but race is something invented by white people to keep and conquer others. And... While I teach the importance of culture and ethnicity, I teach the literature and art of African Americans, I maintain connections with family and friends that does not have me have day-to-day anxieties about the fact that there's not enough Latinos, Blacks and Asians in Vermont.
1: I have to admit, this is a response I did not expect.
6: I get this question all the time and no offense. It feels very kind of 20th century. I mean, we live in a more global age right now. Would I welcome more black barbers in Burlington? Yes, I would. (laughs) However, I'm a stone's throw away from a wonderful Caribbean community in Montreal. I have Haitian friends in, in Boston We're not as isolated as we once were in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s.
1: Jackson says, in effect, the question is misdirected.
6: Particularly asking people of color or African Americans, what do you think about the whiteness of Vermont? Is it troubling? Yes, it is troubling. I've never been chased by skinheads in Vermont. I've never been called the N-word in Vermont. Even if someone thought about it, they never said it to my face. Has that happened to you elsewhere? Of course it has. Of course it has.
1: Jackson is no stranger to Vermont's shortcomings, but for him
6: there is a level of of decency around humanity and the environment and how we should treat each other. There's a there is for the most part a spiritualness about the place at least that I see and sense that has me feel comfortable. Um the whiteness of Vermont is just a foregone, but At least it's a brand of whiteness that I can live with.
1: We've already mentioned a lot of writers in this episode, but one name kept resurfacing every time I asked other writers for some of their personal favorites.
2: Ruth Stone.
1: Ruth Stone.
2: Ruth Stone. Ruth Stone.
1: Ruth Stone is a former Poet Laureate of Vermont who won the National Book Award for Poetry in 2002 and was a Pulitzer finalist in 2009. She died at her home in Ripton in 2011 after living in Goshen, Vermont, for decades in a house that's now listed on the National Register of Historic Places. And thanks to the efforts of her heirs, an effort is underway to turn that property into a writer's retreat. Let's go One of those heirs recently welcomed me to her graduate MFA class for budding writers at Vermont College of Fine Arts in Montpelier.
5: My name is Bianca Stone. I'm 35 years old, and I live in Brandon, Vermont. I'm a poet, but I also do visual art and the occasional nonfiction.
1: Bianca Stone comes from a long line of writers. Her mother, her aunt, sister, and brother are all authors in various genres. And then, of course, there's her grandmother.
5: My grandmother was Ruth Stone. She was a poet and lived her whole life as a poet. Um she moved to Vermont in the late 40s to a house in Goshen which is a very small town near Breadloaf. No stores or anything and it. it's just in the mountains on a dirt road and that's where she raised um my mom and my two aunts and subsequently me.
1: How would you describe her poetry?
5: She just was so good. She had such a musical um voice. I feel like she wrote lots of ballads earlier on. She was very good at the sort of formal poetry that was big in the forties when she first started writing. but she was able to subvert that and where whereas a lot of poets sort of were sort of mired in the in the formal writing of poetry that has since pretty much died out um she right away started to play with that and to make it new and while still retaining a lot of the music of formal poetry. So I think she has that old world feel, but also was very ahead of her time in her voice.
1: Do you think that Vermont helped her writing? Do you think that it was, uh, or did she discuss that much? Do you remember? I mean...
5: Oh, she talked about it all the time. I mean, Vermont was like, Vermont truly was what she identified as her home, and um, she strongly identified it with her poetry.
1: Bianca Stone says physical space is important to poets, and Ruth Stone's property in Goshen, which she purchased with money she won from a poetry prize, was her literal and spiritual home.
5: It becomes very important where you're able to have the privacy, space, time to create your work, and she was looking for that and found it in Vermont when she happened upon this house for sale, went to look at it and fell in love with it and bought it right away, even without asking my grandfather first. (laughs) And it really was her writing haven.
1: Bianca Stone carries her grandmother's poems with her always, in her heart, her mind, and yes, our modern age being what it is, on her phone. So I asked her if she would read me one. She chose.
5: Spring Beauties. The abandoned campus, empty brick buildings in early June when you came to visit me, crossing the states midway, the straggled belts of little roads, hitchhiking with your portable typewriter. The campus, an academy of trees under which some hand, the winds I guess, had scattered the pale light of thousands of spring beauties, petals stained with pink veins, secret, blooming for themselves. We sat among them, your long fingers, thin body, the long bones of improbable genius, some scattered gene as Kafka must have had. Your deep voice, this passing dust of miracles, that simple that was myself, half conscious, as though each moment was a page where words appeared, the bent hammer of the type struck against the moving ribbon, the light air, the restless leaves, the ripple of time warped by our longing, there as if we were painted by some unknown Impressionist.
1: That's Bianca Stone reading the poem Spring Beauties by her grandmother, the late Ruth Stone. Thanks so much for listening to the show this month. We've got links to more poetry readings, authors, and suggestions for their work at our website, bravelittlestate.org. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio, and we have support from the VPR Innovation Fund. Our editor this month is Mark Davis, and the producer is Lynn McRae. Our theme music is by Ty Gibbons. Other music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. We have engineering support from John Billingsley and digital support from Meg Malone. Special thanks this month to VPR's Bela Metzger, Liam Elder-Connors, Peter Ingish, and Noah Cutter. Also thanks to Nick Spengler. I'm Mitch Wertlieb. Angela Evansy will be back next month with a question about Vermont's old growth forests. Until then, remember... Be brave. Ask questions.
4: At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling
6: your feed. Find NPR's through line wherever you get your podcasts.